Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, professor of strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. The topic of civil-military relations is one that undergirds almost everything we study here at the U.S. Army War College because it affects every facet of national security and military policy, from the theoretical understanding of war and strategy to strategic leadership to campaign planning. It's also a robust area of scholarly study within several disciplines, including history, political science, and sociology. So all of this together means that civil-military relations are an excellent locus for thinking about the relationship between theory and practice. And so I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Mary Beth Ulrich, Professor of Government and the General Maxwell D. Taylor Chair of the Profession of Arms at the U.S. Army War College. She is a longtime faculty member and one of our resident experts on both the theory and the practice of civil-military relations. So Mary Beth, thanks for joining us here today at the War Room. Jackie, great to be here. Okay. I'm going to start with a definitional question, which is where I start a lot of these podcasts, <laughs> uh, which is to say, what is civil-military relations? What are we talking about when we hear that phrase? Well, here at the War College, we're focused mainly on civil-military relations at the strategic level. And um, at that level, civil-military relation refers to the relationships between a country's military, its political masters, and society. So civil-military relations is typically considered through either an institutional lens, which focuses on interactions between the military as an institution and the other institutions of the state. Now, at this level, the military merits some special consideration over other institutions uh, in the state because it's the one that could potentially dominate the state well, with its monopoly on military power. The other lens that we consider is a sociological lens. And this highlights the relationship between the armed forces and the society. Okay, so we've got these sort of three moving parts, uh, the, the military, the government, and the, the society, the people. Uh, and all of those together are involved in the topic of civil-military relations. Um, in the United States, uh, as in many democracies, I imagine, we talk about the constitutional foundations uh, that are essential to understanding civil-military relations as their practice and as they sort of should be, I guess, in the ideal. Um, can you talk us through some of the key constitutional foundations for sort of proper civil-military relations in the United States? Yes. I mean, this is surprisingly fascinating, but also very basic, because I think we tend to forget our, our constitutional origins and don't really know our own history and our foundations of our own democratic institutions. So I think the first thing we should remember is that the Constitution that most of us are familiar with, the one ratified in 1789, is really a redo. And the United yeah, it was the second take. Right. Redo. Take two from the Articles of Confederation. So, of course, we've won the war and stood up our government. Um, it was interesting because our founders tried to create a system 
that really prioritized their political culture and their political values, which was liberty above all, all else. And so this showed up in that constitutional design, which living under it for a few years, by 1787 or so, it was pretty clear that there are actually some pretty big security deficiencies with mm-hmm. this. Um, on the there was a internal rebellion um, up in uh, Massachusetts that they barely put down with the militias they could muster to go in that direction, and so they convened, you know, in Philadelphia in 1787. And a lot of what they were trying to fix were the security deficiencies. So when you read the Constitution, you can really read it as our civil-military relations um, founding document. Because how are they going to rebalance okay. liberty and security, and you know keep everybody's fears in check? You know, especially of a standing army. You know, very fearful right. of that because they may, they maintain <clears throat> those right that that cultural heritage, those political ideals don't go away. Certainly, the idea of liberty is for for citizens for white free white men is still really important um but this this deficiency like you said i th- i think it is it's a marked difference between the articles and the constitution by the time we get there so what what does the constitution have to say on this question well the 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 main institutional redesign that we are very familiar with was just introducing the three branches of government because we just we're living with a Congress, basically, um, under under the Articles. Um, and in that system, there was no standing army. Uh, there was no way to centrally raise taxes. There was no chief executive. And as we mentioned before, a weak ability to put down um, an internal rebellion. So in the rebalance of liberty and security, we would the Constitution would allow for the establishment of a standing army, although there was an assumption it would be small. Very, very tiny. Very, very tiny. I mean, we're talking, you know, less than 200, I think, at at the time. But even that, just the idea that this could grow into something Mm -hmm. bigger, and there's a lot of debate on that, you know, if you look at the Federalist Papers and this and that. So many of the founders you're familiar with were on opposite sides, um, of this, and the big fear was that establishing a standing army would threaten liberty and eventually lead to militarism, and perhaps the um, military taking over uh, the state. So, what? So it's so they were confronting this central challenge. This has become the central challenge in democratic civil military relations. So of course, they would have been the first people to deal with this, you know, on the planet, right. really. And so that challenge is: how do you create a military? that's strong enough to provide for national security, but not so strong that it threatens the liberty that the republic was established to preserve. So this is what this redesign tried to establish. So as you said, mainly through this, creating the two co-equal principal branches, the presidency, which of course was the new branch, um, and the Congress. And there there wasn't even a federal judiciary before centralized. And so that will be there to be sort of the referee and ensure compliance with the constitutional order. Uh, So in fact, a lot of the checks and balances that we're familiar with, and you probably learned about in school, were actually also there to be a check on the military. So things like the House of Representatives uh, serving in two-year terms, because that would limit the power to raise armies. So you have to reestablish that budget every two years. So that the hope was that it couldn't um, get out of control. Just become like a self-perpetuating... 
thing that nobody that nobody can rein rein in. I guess so that would have to be relooked and have to build up over time, or you know, keep getting reestablished. That wasn't the same for the Navy because I understood they had to have you know the, the Navy to be kind of uh, right. ship stable. take yeah longer to build right. and maintain. Um, and also, you know, as you said, we established a standing army or allowed for the establishment of a standing army. But really, the military power was still in the state militias. And so Congress still had the power to call these up. And that being, you know, sort of the ultimate check that if the standing army got out of, out of hand, still, you know, most able-bodied men were serving in their state militias. Mm-hmm. And they could check this um, as far as that goes. And finally, kind of a little bit more of a normative thing, but written into the Constitution is that all federal officers are to take oaths, you know, to uphold the Constitution. And basically the oath is to uphold the democratic institutions. It's right. not to uh, a leader. It's not to the president. It's not even to the state in general. It's to the process established in the document to itself. To the Constitution yeah. itself. So all of that, I think, is is really important. And I, I like your point that the checks and balances that we associate with the formation and the institutions of the American government are not only checks and balances on each other, but they are also checks to military power. And and the Constitution really formalizes and enshrines this idea of civilian control, that civilians are going to be in in charge and trying to minimize the risk of militarized policymaking, militarized uh, sort of social and cultural norms as well. Um, But we know also that words aren't always enough. Uh, so the Constitution gives us some foundations, but you also write a lot and talk a lot about the significance of norms and behaviors in defining and uh, controlling civil-military relations. So uh, first, what are norms and why are they important? And then can you talk us through some of the specific civil-military mm-hmm. norms? Yeah, let me back up a little bit and elaborate a little bit on that point, why constitutions aren't enough. Yeah. So... There's an interesting book out um, this year called uh, How Democracies Die. It was a, a couple of scholars at um, Harvard, Levitsky and Ziblatt, who are comparativists. And they've studied over time when democracies do sort of wither and die. How does, you know, what's, what's the main cause? And they said, well, you know, they have a lot. I mean, a lot of them just almost carbon copied our constitution. I mean, think of some of the Latin American countries. And so... The rule book was there on paper. doesn't mean it's going to work. It wasn't enough. So what was missing was the attachment to those democratic institutions, which has to develop over time um, through norms. So norms, and I'm, I'm going to sort of like their definition. I think it works very well, although they did not talk about the military and they left them out of the, the book in, in a lot of ways. But these, the, the idea of norms is that they're shared codes of conduct that become common knowledge within a particular community. And they are accepted, they're respected, they're enforced by their members. But because they are unwritten, um, you often maybe don't even realize they're there. Um, often you notice them once they've already started to erode. Okay. And we, we can take them for granted. Um, but when they're strong, any sort of sign of erosion triggers a response um, to uphold them. And specifically, um, related civil military relations, it's part of the broader context of democratic norms. So if there's any eroding of a particular democratic institution, um, 
because of any democratic institution erodes, then that ability to maintain the system overall erodes uh, as far as that goes. So that's the idea of norms in general. And so I basically argue that there are a set of civil military relations norms that are kind of part of this whole sort of puzzle. These these unspoken codes that when when they're strong, they're mutually reinforcing. And when they start to erode, they they should elicit some sort of response to either shore them up or to restore them, I guess. Absolutely, yes. Okay. So what are, let's start with, we'll start with one. But So give us one civil military relation norm that we might understand in an American context. Well, um, this is sort of a two-edged sword for me because I think anybody who knows anything about civil military relations norms will say, well, of course, it's just civilian control of, of the military. I mean, that's, that's like the first thing that comes to mind. First right? thing that will come to mind, especially for the military. But what I found is that not a lot of people understand that that's actually a very nuanced thing. Yeah, what it means so is a more difficult conversation, right? right? So it's not just the military is not going to march on Washington and have a coup and get its way. I mean, no one's really concerned about that in the United States. Um, of course, it does happen in other places, um, but it doesn't mean that the civil military, that civilian control is completely optimal. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. this is a this is a point that many scholars have made, which is just because there's no threat of a coup or there doesn't seem to be a threat of a coup doesn't mean you've got healthy civil military relations. Sure. I mean, it's coming it's coming up, um, it, you know, comes up and off and on in our country um, along the lines of things like, well, is the military just maybe being a little bit too influential in various areas it could be and and again another way to look at civil military relations is kind of like three baskets of topics there's the policy influence there's political influence which tends to go more with partisanship and of course one of the i would say the second biggest norm would be non-partisanship that the military Mm -hmm. should be apolitical um, which means in a policy policy sense is that they don't get to decide what happens what our political decisions reserve for our political leadership, but also nonpartisan, which means they stay out of the sort of political fight. Um, But that's not as easy either, because remember, there's the three actors, right? So the other actors typically could actually be part of drawing them in to the politics. Sure. Yeah. So... And this is what happens in other countries. And when they do have coups, it's not because the military, usually it's not because the military does this all on their own. It's usually because the norms have eroded over time and it's the people that are asking. Who, de- who sort of demand that the military you know, step in. Right. Um, or they be, become maybe co-opted by a political opposition or something like that. Or they think, you know, the, the civilian governance is flailing. Let's bring mm-hmm. in, you know, because that goes back to our institutional lens. Why do we what do we focus on the institutional lens? It's often the strength of the military as an institution compared to the other institutions. And if it is stronger compared to the rest, um, that is probably also an indication of the lack of control, the lack of oversight capability, the lack of being able to keep it in check. Okay. So So these are things like when when say Gallup or Pew or somebody polls the American public, the military right now and has has had for for several decades now some of the the highest levels of trust people um, trust the institution of the military they think it's well sort of well run and it's highly respected uh, and you compare that to other institutions like Congress 
the president and 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 the the gap is like 30 or 40 points i mean it's not a it's mm-hmm. not even close yeah i'm glad you brought that up because in fact uh, the latest uh, gallup data on that oh good and, you have the numbers yeah and it, and it goes back to our discussion about the constitution in the beginning and you know when i see these numbers and you go back and revisit the history and i just think our founders would just sort of be aghast because it certainly mm-hmm. wasn't what they had in mind because the you know you Jackie alluded to the numbers. I've got some specifics on it. First, the question was, um, do you have a great deal or a lot of respect for, then they give a list of institutions. So the institution at the top, is the military gets 74%. So then you go through the list and say, well, gee, what about those democratic institutions that our founders established? This is what our republic is all about. How do they stack up? Well, the presidency weighs in at 37%. That's a pretty whopping gap. Congress is at the bottom of the list, 11%. 11? That's getting worse over over time. It's sometimes single digits. I don't know if that's an all-time low. And, of course, it's not – remember, it's the the military, the the government, and the people – so the people are reflected in a society's check, as often through the media and newspapers. They get 23%. So I think that's really an interesting sort of turn of events. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, theoretically not a great trend. Yeah, I do think <clears throat> I do think the founders would be maybe appalled <laughs> by by those numbers. Um, and I, I, I think your your point that those are maybe a source of concern um, is is important. It, it's a pretty striking turnaround in some ways. From the same polling that's done in the in the early '80s, uh, late '70s and early '80s, when the military is not a trusted institution, it's not a respected profession, right? The the line that military sort of ranks below like garbage collectors in the late '70s and early '80s, and there's a there's a pretty remarkable yeah. turnaround. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because what do you think led led to that? Well, I have on, yeah. on the timeline. <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty directly, I think, related yes. to the Vietnam War and the election of of Reagan and military buildup at right. the end of the Cold War. And I would argue the decision to go to the all volunteer yeah. military, because it kind of I think what's going on in the United States, and I would also argue just other advanced democracies that have you know they mostly all shifted toward these professional full time mm-hmm. militaries have gotten rid of the draft conscription. And now we have several generations of this. And so that, this, has, this has affected civil-military relations, especially in this sociological lens. So now you have a very small percentage of the population participating really in right. any direct way or even knowing anybody in any direct way. And so I know back um, Admiral Mullen, uh, Michael Mullen, uh, uh, previous um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he was uh, very concerned about this, and he would go and talk to military groups and say, hey, don't get all these big heads because, you know, you're doing well in these polls. Because if you ask them the next question on the poll, after giving the military, you know, very nice very mark high marks on yes, the survey, like them. next question, well, do you know anybody? Yeah. And, well, no, I don't really know anybody. So what yeah, Mullen, some of the latest numbers are like right. oh, up to 90% don't, of, people, of Americans right. don't know anyone um, so what Mullen used to say was, well, they might love us, but they don't know us. Yeah. And maybe if they knew you better, that you know, your stock might go down. So, you know, that's that's a little something. But the gap, the gap's an, an issue. 
um, so the mil- it's made the military a little bit more isolated. Um, nowadays, you hear things like warrior caste. You know, increasingly, uh, the military is coming from military families. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's regionally yeah. specific. It's, yeah. yeah, so there's all sorts of interesting right. things that tie together the sociological perspective, this institutional perspective, the constitutional foundations, and the normative behaviors in this um, in this really, I think, robust and interesting field that that mm-hmm. you work in. Um, let's let's move to some of the the specifics because mm-hmm. right, if norms are enforced by behaviors, um, can you talk to us a little bit about what different people in these three groups, the military, uh, the political actors, and societal actors, um, what can people actually do to make sure that the norms, um, things like civilian control and the idea of an apolitical military, what does that look like in practice? Mm -hmm. Well, I think overall, all those actors must be attached to their democratic institutions, and this sounds kind of trite and simple, but when you put it in, into a political context, you know, especially the United States current political context, a very polarized society, that often decisions are made, you know, through a partisan lens, which may not lead various actors to decisions that are necessarily putting institutions first. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to look at it writ large, um, and. Again, what did the founders expect when they set up this system that they invested power in various <laughs> branches? And they definitely assumed that the actors that were vested with certain powers would actually assert that power. Because the whole thing kind of breaks down if a key actor, say a co-equal branch, say um, cedes what it's supposed to do. Doesn't exert its power. Yeah. Okay. Then everything gets everything can get out of whack. Um, I think the military is an interesting place because, as an institution, you know, it's always that's that, again that's one of the fascinations of studying civil military relations <laughs> is in the United States is that they're kind of caught between the two co-equal branches. So you know, just even the culture. You, what's your chain of command when you have two commanders? You have the president, but you mm-hmm. have the Congress, and and really, and you answer to both. You have to answer to both, and you can't really put one over the other. I mean, I think professionally the executive tends to get the upper hand, but that's really not prof- it's really not right. the way it should they be. Have, right, the president is the commander in chief, so I think that that tends to sort of override sometimes in in the imagination uh, the significance yes. of the executive. And it's reinforced. I mean, anybody who's been on a military base somewhere, you know, near the entrance, you get inside the main building, you see a list of photographs. Yeah, you see, you see a display of photo- photographs, and what's in that display? Yeah, it's the president, the vice president, secretary of defense, and and right. down the the, right. the literal chain of all command. the way down to the commanding general of the base where you are. The, and I've always argued, you know, there should be like a picture of the Capitol Dome, you know, right, you know, right up there too. Like, why not? Just or remind the speaker them. or the majority leader. Yes, so, yeah, to, yeah, sure. Or those no, people. I think that's a really interesting. And maybe maybe it, that's a new thing that. Yeah. Well, maybe the work calls. Maybe we could do it. Maybe we don't even need permission to do it. We could just do it. <laughs> um, so, oh. from a from a societal level, if if people listening out there are not in the military and they're not elected political officials, um, what do you think the sort of average American might do to help uphold and reinforce civil military norms? Again, back to the basics. 
be attached to your democratic institutions in general. So that's all the branches. That's also our free press because, you know, we we didn't talk about the Bill of Rights, but that's, you know, the, the add on to the Constitution. So that, and it's a reflection of what our founders thought was so important, must be protected and essential because the media um, is a very important part part of what we call the public control, not just the government Mm -hmm. control, but the public control. So really anybody in society who's affected by what the military could do, either to, you know, um, uphold or not its system of government or to be overactive or underactive or whatever, though we all have an interest in, in just understanding that. And then going back to these norms, um, Understanding, because as we mentioned a little while ago, mili- the military up, upholds its end of the deal often through its own professional development and its sense of professionalism, mm-hmm. which it is really kind of um, pounded in. I to, mean, it's part of their identity. Right. That they will be um, you know, subordinate to the civilians. And so they really don't want to get caught up in this kind of thing. But again, as we said, often the issue is not because they want to get caught up in it, but often the partisan actors are drawing them into this. Right. So this is everything from, you know, drawing them in to take a side politically uh, to electoral politics. Uh, there's a lot of strict rules governing active duty on this, but the the stewards of the profession, which I would put up as the stewards, like our chairman of the Joint Chiefs and kind of the, the leaders of, of the military, the active duty leaders, they have in recent years tried to get a grasp on what the retired generals are doing. Right. Right. Because going back to society and going back to that gap, it's kind of ironic that if the American people know anybody, they probably are more aware of the retired generals who gained some fame, you know, when they're in active duty probably name more of them than the ones on active duty. And to them, it's kind of all the same. Because they get some of their, they're a little bit more free to to speak to the media, to speak out, to um, give speeches or public talks and to to have opinions that are published. So I think those are all uh, really important pieces of of this question. So um, let's let's leave our Mm -hmm. listeners with maybe some homework, Mm -hmm. which is um, what are the, what are the, key sort of ideas or tasks that you think anyone listening again military or political or civilian um need to do you can maybe start with like read the constitution and (laughs) know what's there yeah i think that's a great start i mean i i think it's a great exercise whenever i do a lesson or try to teach the foundations of american civil military relations so you have to go to the constitution and you have to go to what was the intent of the founders, especially regarding civil-military relations. And it was, again, to manage that challenge of getting that military that was good enough, you know, effective enough to keep us secure, uh, growing country, you know, this and that, but not to threaten liberty. So that means a balance. Um, So don't love it too much. And don't love your other institutions too little, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's okay so. to be skeptical of the military, to ask hard questions of it, to expect it to uphold. Right. And I think there's a trend nowadays to say, well, you know, let's get the military to do this, that, and the other thing. 
which either isn't in their professional expertise or because this is another kind of common problem, not just the United States, but other places. If often it's because if you don't have a capacity in some other part of your society or you perceived you think you don't, you go to that institution that has the capacity. Right. Who has a structure and the resources and the people can do attitude. Yeah. And you start to ask them to do things. And, you know, maybe you have to know where those lines are. You know, do we need retired generals doing all kinds of jobs in administration that were traditionally civilian jobs? Because another, another sort of civil mill theory when it comes to policy is that you get the best theory when you leverage the expertise on the military side with the political expertise on the civilian leadership mm -hmm. side. Hopefully they know enough about each other that they can interact in some sort of nexus of common knowledge. But when you just go to the military to do a job that could be done by very expert civilians, then you there's a missing piece mm -hmm. in the, the in military the has in part been trained right. to, to not operate in, in the same in the same way and to not consider the same things. And I think you think you'll get some suboptimal outcomes. Some other homework you could you could give to our listeners is go back and look at strategic failures and do sort of an autopsy on the civil military relations that were going on leading mm -hmm. up to that strategic failure. And you're probably going to see some dysfunctionality along the line. Like, where did that go wrong? Where do we not get that optimal sure. cooperation? Do you think we see the the flip side, which is in when we see great strategic success, are we more likely to see healthy civil military relations as well? Well, I would think it would definitely be more likely. Maybe more likely. Yeah, yeah. Not, not a guarantee, likely. but more because, likely. Because I think if you... If you're focusing on the quality of decision-making, of course, there could be other things going on sure. that even quality decisions can't get you your outcome, but I think often that has been our problem. It's not that we don't have the power. It's not we don't have you know, the means. There's something about how we're thinking about it, so mm -hmm. there's probably something there. Great. All right. So with that, we will wrap up for today. Uh, we could have many more discussions about this topic, and perhaps we'll do that uh, sometime in the future. But thanks for getting us started on a robust discussion of civil-military relations and norms surrounding that. So we're signing off from the War Room. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.